This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And uh, thank you all for joining us today. I want to, real quick, before we get to our guest, I just want to remind everybody that you can follow Planet Microcap on my Twitter. It's at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B O B B Y K K R A F T. And that's where I usually go and post and announce every new episode, who I might be uh, uh, interviewing next. Uh, hey, leave a suggestion. If you've got somebody that you think I should interview on here, open to all suggestions. Um, we also have a virtual investor conference coming up the first week of August, August 3rd through the 6th. Go to conference.snn.network to go and register. We have a number of very exciting companies, keynotes, panels, go and do one-on-ones, the, the works. We got everything there. So uh, as I said, you can go to conference.snn.network to uh, go in and register and participate. Now for today, I got a, a very special guest. We're doing, this is, this is kind of cool. We're doing, a little, we're doing a little anonymous thing going on here. And it's actually with somebody who I've been following for a while now, uh, both on Twitter and also uh, their blog. Uh, this is Value Stock Geek. I'm gonna refer to this person as Mr. Geek. So with that, Mr. Geek, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. And uh, I'm just, I'm stoked to have you here. This, this should be fun. Yeah, happy to be here. It sounds it's going to be, uh, I'm excited to do it. Absolutely. All right. So as we do with uh, any of our guests on the podcast, you know, I'd love to, you know, for as much as you want to go into, you know, this is anonymous. So you don't have to uh, necessarily uh, get too deep, but if you want, you know, but at the end of the day, I think my audience would love to know uh, when and where did your passion for investing begin? So I first really became interested in the stock market in high school. Um, I graduated high school in 2000. So this was during the internet bubble. Um, so internet stocks were going crazy. Um, I was always pretty much a geek. So I was always pretty interested in, in um, computers and the internet. Um, I was an early user of the internet. I was using it in like 95, like when the first browsers came out on Netscape and stuff. So I was always kind of, uh, telling my parents and telling anyone who would listen how the internet was going to change the world, how you need to invest in this. And then when I saw the internet bubble start to get going, I was like, okay, this is it. This is the new world order. Um, everything's going to uh, change because of the internet. Our economy is going to change. I was very much a bulled up internet believer, um, which is funny considering my philosophy today. But um, then when I was graduating from high school, the whole time it never really sat right with me. Like I, sometimes I would sit back and I would say, you know, this doesn't really uh, make sense that this company is not making any money and yet it's trading at like 12 times sales, uh, <laughs> that type of thing. Um, so I actually graduated from high school 
in 2000. So in May at my graduation party, um, a much older family member heard I was interested in investing, said, hey, you should read The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll see what this is all about. Um, see what this old guy has to say. <laughs> and I read The Intelligent Investor and uh, it really spoke to me. Once I read about margin of safety and Mr. Market, um, it all really started to click with me. And I realized that what I was doing was a little insane. Um, and I actually got out of, I had a, I owned some stock in Cisco. I sold it. I got out of that. Um, and then I watched the internet and bubble implode. So I had read Ben Graham, like just in time. Um, so that really solidified investing for me and my whole philosophy and outlook on the world. Um, then I read some Warren Buffett. I read his letters. I was interested in that. Um, I thought that really made a lot of sense. Um, and then basically after absorbing all those lessons, I went to college, majored in finance, um, learned about the efficient market hypothesis, didn't really speak to me. I was able to regurgitate it, graduate, um, do, do that type of thing. Um, and then I basically had the idea that, okay, um, when I have a significant amount of money to invest, I'm going to follow Warren Buffett's principles and, uh, pursue value investing in a more serious way. Over the years, I'd like save up a little bit of money and throw it at a stock or two. But um, around 2014, 2015, I had saved up for me at least like a pretty significant amount of money. I decided, okay, I am going to pursue a very serious portfolio here. It's going to be diversified. I'm going to research these companies in depth and I'm really going to go all in on this strategy, apply what I've always wanted to do now that I have the money saved up to do so. Um, and I read as much as I could. I read, um, you know, Shaughnessy, I read uh, Tobias Carlyle. Um, those were a lot of the books that I came across. And uh, I started to do some of my own back testing, my own research, try to figure out um, this game. And the one that really spoke to me was Tobias Carlyle's book, Deep Value. Um, that one really clicked with me because I had always kind of struggled with the Warren Buffett. Um, it's better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price. Um, and it never really made a lot of sense to me why these wonderful companies would be trading at these prices. And it never really, I understood conceptually the idea of buying value, but I didn't understand how that value was unlocked. And I really got that when I read Deep Value, because it was all about how, what you're really betting on is mean reversion in the business fundamentals. You're buying a business that has beaten up and you're counting on mean reversion to kick in and the business will recover. Um, and then I decided, um, once I had started up with that, once I had done my research, once I had decided on an approach, um, I decided around 2016, okay, I'm going to um, run a blog to hold myself accountable, um, where I'm going to put every trade that I do on this blog. I'm going to write up a thesis. It's something I'm going to be able to refer to later. I'll be held publicly accountable for the decisions that I make. And uh, it's something I'll be able to look back on and try to learn lessons from, try to get better at it. Um, and basically what I was trying to do was trying to do um, Tobias's uh, methods where he was talking about buying low, acquires multiple stocks. Um, and then I was also trying to combine that with Ben Graham's method that he developed in the 70s, which was low PE, low debt to equity ratios. So I try to combine multiple metrics um, as opposed to just the enterprise multiple. And um, my idea with the blog was, okay, then 
I'm going to do this method while there's this bull market going on. And then I figured eventually I'd have an opportunity to buy um, NetNets, which is Ben Graham's second systematic quantitative method. I figured at some point, um, probably within the next few years, I thought at the time, we'd have some opportunity where we'll be able to buy stocks below net current asset value. Um, and I'll be able to do that for a brief period of time when it's available in the United States. Very cool. So th there's a lot to unpack there. And actually, a good amount of what you said we're going to be covering shortly in, in this interview. But I wanted to first ask you a question that was actually posed um, uh, for our investors roundtable, but we didn't get a chance to get to it. And I thought it was pretty important because um, this is a question that I feel like a lot of people, you know, when we're in our 20s, uh, even in our teenage years where we're like, okay, we want to invest, but we want to build up enough wealth to then go and uh, actually go and do it and feel like you're actually, I don't know, I, I guess actually really building something. Right. You know? so, yeah. so, so what were, what were some of the methods that you did were to, that helped you get to the point where in 2014 where you're like, okay, I've saved up enough, you know, I'm ready to go. So I had always basically, uh, I had, always been trying to accumulate some money over the years. That was obviously difficult to do in college, in my early years in the workforce. Um, I went through some, some periods where I was in some debt. I worked my way out of it, tried to get out of it. By 2014, I had in one account, um, in this IRA account that I track on my blog, I had saved up 50 grand. So I said, okay, I think that's that's a good starting point to really go after a strategy where I'm gonna buy 20 to 30 stocks. Prior to that, I would throw a grand or two at a, at a stock here and there, but it was never um, like running a systematic portfolio. It was never, it was, I'm excited about X company. Um, I think that's a decent bargain, but it was never, I'm going to own 20 stocks um, and really try to run a portfolio the way that I should. Um, and by that point, I figured I had saved up enough money where I could start to do that. Right. So, I mean, was it just a matter of like, okay, frugal living, like, you know, cause there, there's that balance of, uh, you know, uh, most millennials out there, I think we can all agree there's, you know, wanting to enjoy life, but then also making sure that you put money away for a rainy day or put money away for, for investing purposes. You know, what, what were some of the things that you had going through your mind that you're like, okay, you know, I'm going to make sure I do this, but I want to get here. So I got to sacrifice these things. Um, when I was in debt, I used the debt snowball. I was actually more uh, Dave Ramsey than I was Benjamin Graham. <laughs> that helped me get out of debt. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, when I was in my 20s, I, that, that helped me get out of that situation. Um, and just extremely, extremely frugal living for a while um, to try to get out of that hole. Um, and then really start to save and, and aggressively accumulate some money. Um, I'm doing the same thing today. Um, I'm, I'm trying to aggressively save. I'm trying to build something for myself. Um, I'm pursuing financial independence. You know, I'd like to get there someday. I'm not there yet. Um, but that was, I'd say that was the key thing, trying to keep my living expenses to an absolute minimum. Absolutely. All right. So you mentioned that you started uh, the Value Stock Geek blog back in December, 2016. You know, you already kind of went through some of your reasoning for starting that, but how would you say it's evolved since then? So when I started the blog, um, I was much more um, quantitatively oriented. 
um, I had done a lot of back testing. I had done a lot of research in the quantitative um, side of things. I think the quantitative philosophy makes a lot of sense. Um, it's very difficult to predict which companies are going to outperform. Uh, the evidence seems to indicate that most people underperform simple quantitative models. Um, for instance, Joel Greenblatt, he ran a uh, brokerage firm um, around 2010, where he basically allowed people to pick magic formula stocks. And then he also allowed them to let the computer do it for them. Um, no surprise, the computer outperformed. Um, a lot of it is because people systematically avoid the value stocks that have the worst news that look the scariest. Those are usually the ones that deliver the best results. Um, so I took that quantitative philosophy, the heart. Um, I bought 20 bargains just right away. I'm saying, here's 20 stocks that make sense to me. I'm going to buy them all. Um, and over time, I've gotten a lot more qualitative in my research. I've started doing um, much more in-depth research than I did on that first portfolio um, of really trying to uh, read the 10K, really try to understand the business, really try to think hard about what's going on, and then try to strike a balance between um, the reasons that quantitative strategies outperform and trying to add my own qualitative element to it. Um, I try very hard to not get too um, wrapped up in the idea that this business is screwed, that all is lost, because I know that that's the very tendency that leads most value investors to underperform simple quantitative models. Um, and I think I've gotten better at identifying those opportunities in the last few years since I, uh, since I started the blog from back then. Well, quick follow up there, because we're going to get to your strategy in a minute and, and as well as your portfolio management strategy. But, you know, what, what were some of the things that you'd say you've learned the most from now starting to implement more of this qualitative approach to your strategy? Um, I think a big thing is to not have too much concentration in a single industry. Um, so, and I overrode my own uh, stock screens earlier on where the stock screen was recommending that I'd be 60, 70% retail, um, physical retail stores. That's what a lot of my screens were spitting out. And I said, well, that might be a little bit risky. So, <laughs> so I, I limited that to about 30% of my portfolio. Um, which is still a lot, um, and some of them worked out very well. Some of them didn't work out very well. It wasn't as bad as you might imagine. Um, some of them I sold for for a decent profit, like Foot Locker. Um, Dick Sporting Goods is one that worked out for me. Full disclosure, I used to own them. Um, I still own Dick Sporting Goods. I no longer own Foot Locker. Um, but some of those positions worked out. So that was a big thing was making sure that um, I keep my industry concentration to a minimum. Um, another thing was I always thought, well, um, all the research shows that you should own it for a year and then do a rebalance. Um, I would hold on to positions for an entire year, even when I knew it wasn't working out. You know, I knew that the business was falling apart, but I was really trying to stick to the quantitative model. Um, and that was a mistake. Um, my instincts were correct. I should have gotten out of those businesses earlier. Um, so one thing I started doing was to try to review the portfolio every quarter and then also review the stock every time it posts a quarterly loss. Like once it posts an actual loss, I think it's it's an opportunity to really go back in depth, re-examine the thesis and try to figure out what's going on. Um, and that simple rule has helped me avoid a lot of uh, major blowups. I was going to say, I mean, it, when when you applied that new rule, 
I'm sure, especially because things move so fast nowadays, especially in the last, what, three to four months, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, well, I guess it's, it's a little different the last three to four months, but I'd say, okay, let's yeah. take, take 2019 or 2018 when you did see those, okay, this company's growing. All right, here's a bad quarter, but you know, you're seeing maybe the market at large moving very quickly out of the stock. I mean, for you, you know, have you also had to take adjust to that as well? And like, okay, there's people moving this thing out and it's just driving the stock down. But my process tells me I want to go back in and really evaluate before I, I, I shed, you know, so what, how do you, how do you balance that? I'd say it's looking at momentum, but looking at momentum in the sense of business fundamentals and not the price action. So I'm looking for um, momentum in downside momentum in the, in the stock price. Um, a lot of that comes from Michael Burry. I read Michael Burry's letters and he talked about um, using technical analysis and using price action to try to find those kind of factors. Like when a position started to move against him, he would look into it. I thought, well, I could do a similar thing, but I'm going to do it with the actual business fundamentals and try to look into that. Um, and that's, and that's definitely helped me. It's definitely helped me avoid some, some disasters and yeah, markets do move really fast and price action can catch you uh, by surprise. And it's something you have to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Okay. So now, uh, let, I want to get into the point in the interview where we go, kind of go through your full strategy. And uh, as you stated already here and also on your website, you know, the blog really chronicles your portfolio and it, and it serves as your outlet to share your ideas based on a strategy inspired by the teaching go, teachings of Ben Graham, as well as influenced by Toby Carlisle's great book, uh, Deep Value. Um, by the way, I, you're, you got to get on his show. I can't, I, I'm now really excited to hear you guys just talk about his book and I, I, hopefully that happens soon. I'll, I'll hopefully make sure that happens. But uh, like I said, this, this is kind of a long winded way of asking, uh, I know, but uh, in essence, how would you describe your investing strategy? Um, so the main things that I'm looking for are stocks that are statistically cheap. So I'm looking for usually things that are single digit PE. I'm looking for an enterprise uh, multiple that's below 10. Um, I tend to like things that are below sales. Um, I also want to see that it's statistically cheap based on its history and based on its competitors. So um, a good way to measure that would be um, EV to sales. So if you see something at a trough in EV to sales, like most companies, when you look at the history of their valuation ratios, it looks almost like a wave. So I'm trying to buy it at like one of those troughs. I'm trying to buy it when that EV to sales ratio is pretty low. It's usually a pretty good sign that the business is at some kind of trough. So I'm looking at all of that. Um, in addition to that, I want to see a good balance sheet. I want to see, um, you know, good interest coverage. I want to see a debt to equity ratio that's below 50%. So I'm very conservative with balance sheets. Um, I've noticed in my own back testing that when you um, control for the balance sheet, you help control drawdowns like that. While um, a pure value strategy, like low EV, the EBIT um, performed well, you know, over the last 20 years, you, you were able to significantly limit the drawdowns if you limited it to a universe of, say, low EV, the EBIT companies with a debt to equity ratio below 50%. That really helped contain the 2008 drawdown. Um, so it's a sign that balance sheets logically help, that they can help contain your drawdowns. Um, so that's something I look for. I like to see consistency and profitability. I like to see a, a company that consistently produces earnings and cash flow year after year, quarter after quarter. Um, I've noticed that's a quality factor that works pretty well. 
Um, and then I would say once the stock meets all of those quantitative elements, I'm going to do a deeper dive into it. Um, I'm going to read the 10K. I'm going to read maybe the previous year's 10K. I'm going to try to understand the business. I'm going to try to understand what they do, what their current competitive position is. I'm going to do research. Um, I'm going to go online, try to find, um, you know, any articles, try to find what people are saying about the stock. And the key thing I'm trying to figure out is, um, what is causing this undervaluation? Why is the stock cheap? And then try to think about whether or not it can overcome whatever kind of problem it's in. Because obviously this is a deep value universe. When you're looking at a deep value stock screen, all of those companies have some problem. There's some issue that's going on. And the goal that I, as I see it is to try to figure out if that problem can get resolved either through mean reversion in the business or through some type of activism or, or something that management is currently doing. Got it. So, so my next question really has to do with your, your portfolio management rules because it, it, it obviously ties in, you know, but um, can you outline some of those? Cause I have some follow-ups from there as well. Sure. So um, I've done some research and basically it agrees with Ben Graham. It agrees with the academic research that the ideal portfolio size is 20 to 30 stocks. Um, that that's the best way to basically minimize portfolio blowups. It's the best way to maximize your sharp ratio. Not that that's supposed to be our guiding principle as value investors, but you know volatility matters and your risk adjusted returns matter. So try to maintain at least 20 to 30 stocks. Um, and then Ben Graham had some pretty simple rules. Ben Graham's rules were that you hold for 10 years or a 50% gain. Um, I've kind of taken that to heart. A lot of people tend to follow Warren Buffett's strategy, which is more you're going to own stocks forever. Ben Graham's strategy is definitely more of a, um, it's not a short-term trading strategy, but it's, it's a trading strategy. Like you're trying to buy stocks when they're uh, below their intrinsic value and then you sell. You don't hold on to them for decades at a time. You're trying to find undervalued situations and then um, sell them once they've reached their intrinsic value. So I'm trying to do that. And then I'm also trying to keep tabs on um, how the actual business is doing. And if I see the business fundamentals slip, I'm going to sell before that. Um, you know, so I'd say those are the, those are my overriding principles. With that said, um, I also look at the, I've been looking at the macroeconomic picture. Um, I re, I'm currently 80% cash. I've sold a lot of my positions uh, because I think that this recession is going to be a lot more serious than we think. At the moment, the market's telling me I'm, I'm completely wrong. Perhaps the market's right. Um, but looking at the overall, <laughs> looking at the overall valuations in the market, looking at the conditions of the economy, um, I think there will be an opportunity to buy more bargains. Um, when I first started, I was looking for an opportunity eventually to buy a large number of net nets. I figured that opportunity would come along. They, uh, they started to appear in March at the lows. Um, and I said, all right, this is it. This is going to start happening. And then as soon as I saw them, they immediately disappeared. Um, and I hope I didn't miss my opportunity. <laughs> Certainly possible I did. Um, but I, I don't think so. I think there's going to be an opportunity to, um, I think there's more, I don't think that this situation is over. And I think there's going to be an opportunity to buy some of those. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, look, I, I, we said offline, I think uh, the only thing that Actually, I just said this in another interview too, but hey, you know what? Look, it applies each time. 
the only thing we can be certain about is uncertainty. And, uh, you know, as long as you're, as long as you're following your own rules, it seems as though that at least you're setting yourself up for success and to take advantage when it, when, you know, an opportunity comes up that meets your criteria. Yeah, absolutely. And I've bought some stocks that have met my criteria. Um, I bought one net net. Um, I also bought a couple positions that I thought were interesting. Um, and so there have been some opportunities I've seen here and there, but I do think there's going to be an opportunity to get more of them. This is an active account. I'm making active decisions. I'm not following a pure quantitative strategy like I mentioned earlier. Um, so this is my active bet and we'll see if it works out. It might not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, look, we're wishing you the best of luck and, and, <laughs> and what either way we're going to be following along. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, what's interesting about your, your portfolio management strategy, just what you're doing in general. And, and that I find fascinating is that you're, you're using this value investing criteria, but then deploying this trader strategy because it's, I think you said your maximum holding is what, about two years? Um, so, so like ex explain how you then got to that process where you're like, okay, I can use, I, I know I can use these things to find opportunities where that, because I think one of your other criteria was that as long as it goes up at least 50%, you're good. And that's when you sell. I mean, how does that work? Um, so I, those are Ben Graham's rules. I don't follow them to the letter. Um, I will let a stock run more if it goes beyond 50%, if I feel like the business is still performing, if I feel like the valuation is still sensible. But um, I think Ben Graham's rules kind of give a good template for what that style of value investing ought to be. So prior to you know, reading um, about Ben Graham's low PE, low debt equity strategy. Um, I had already been buffetized and, you know, most people, they start with Graham, then they get buffetized and then that's it for them. For me, I kind of like devolved. <laughs> so I went from Warren Buffett and buy wonderful companies and hold them forever. Um, and then after some, some experiences of buying some stocks that didn't exactly work out, um, I started to think, well, am I really that great of a business analyst? Am I really as good of a business analyst as Warren Buffett? Um, and it was a question I had always struggled with. Um, and then I kind of went back to Ben Graham and I went back to that strategy where he was talking about what he's really talking about, what Schloss is talking about, what Ben Graham is talking about is buying undervalued situations and then selling. Like he's not talking about holding on to stocks for decades on end like Coca-Cola. Certainly wonderful if you can find those situations, um, but I think they're much harder to find than most investors realize. Um, when you do have a wonderful business, it's a business with a target on its back. It's a business that's going to, you know, people are going to see those high returns. They're going to see those high margins, those high returns on invested capital they're going to try to eat into those returns and competition will eventually cause those returns the mean revert. Um, and it's very hard to find those businesses that are immune to those forces. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are great at it. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have found businesses with that moat that can resist that pull of that natural pull of competition. Um, you know, they find them in businesses like Coke. They find them in businesses like Seize Candy. Um, but I think for most of us, we're not Warren Buffett. We're not Charlie Munger. Um, it's hard for us to figure that out. I, I'm certainly not at that level of business analysis as they are. And I don't think a lot of investors who think they can do that are really capable of doing that. Um, 
there's a reason that he's Warren Buffett. There's a reason that they're Charlie Munger. And that reason is they've been able to not only find these undervalued situations, which work out great when you're, when you're a small investor, uh, but they've been able to grow beyond that and find these wonderful businesses and, and grow their wealth at that level. Um, but another aspect of it too, is you don't really have to do that until you're a billionaire. Like when you're, a guy like me and you have 50 grand in a brokerage account, you can, you can buy a micro cap net net and get perfectly satisfactory returns. So um, I don't really think it's necessary to go for that, that kind of approach. And I'm perfectly content buying an undervalued stock and selling it when it goes up. And it also kind of takes the pressure off a little bit because on one hand you're reading, you know, you're reading uh, any of Buffett's letters and watching their interviews and, you know, you, you like aspire to be that, but in that pursuit of like, I'm going to be the best business analyst I can, you know, it's, it's almost humbling to the point where you're like, okay, can I actually analyze a business as well as he can, you know, not just from his natural intellect, but he's also got what, 70, 80 years of experience now on us. I mean, was he 90? hundred percent. Yeah. You know, like it, it's just, it's, it's really impossible to kind of put that pressure on yourself. Like I'm going to put that strategy to work and I'm going to drive myself crazy trying to figure out if I actually know how to analyze these businesses beyond the numbers and, and a little bit of qualitative. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, another thing to consider, I mean, Warren Buffett, he didn't really move on to that strategy until he had to. Um, he was investing in net nets in the fifties and sixties and doing the best returns of his career. And he didn't really move on from that until the net nets disappeared. And he had so much money that it was no longer a strategy he could deploy there. Um, and then when Warren Buffett runs his personal account outside of Berkshire Hathaway, um, he did buy a portfolio of, for instance, South Korean net nets. He took out a manual of South Korean stocks. He went through, he looked at the balance sheets, he looked at the price, and then he just bought 30 companies without necessarily doing the kind of deep intensive dives he would at Berkshire, and then just owned them based on their undervaluation. And he said he would do that if he was a smaller investor. So yeah, I think if you're a small investor, you have some advantages. You don't have to, you don't have to find some Coca-Cola 1987 that can compound wealth over decades on end. Like it's just not something you have to do until you're at that level. Absolutely. All right. So um, you also uh, let me in on the fact that you actually have a book coming out titled, and I quote here, the weird portfolio, avoid bubbles, limit drawdowns, safely grow wealth, end quote. So what is your thesis then for, for your upcoming book? Okay, so the um, the brokerage account that I track on that blog, that's an IRA. That's like an active account. I'm making active decisions in there. So outside of that, I save money and I don't, and I rarely bought like individual stocks in those accounts. I don't ETFs, I don't mutual funds, um, that type of thing. So it had become a real uh, soup of different ETFs and different things. And I wanted to simplify it. So I started to look into asset allocation. Um, and I wanted to create a portfolio that would consistently generate returns, a decent return. It's not going, this isn't a portfolio that will make you rich. It's a portfolio that will basically deliver a satisfactory rate of return while limiting drawdowns while, um, you know, safely growing capital. Um, I am not comfortable investing in, for instance, your traditional 60-40 portfolio right now. 
Um, 60% market cap weighted stocks. Market cap weighted stocks are by nearly every valuation metric that's out there. They're at near all-time highs. They're at near internet bubble levels. So I think they're likely to generate flat or negative returns over the next, you know, over the next 10 years. Um, your 40% bonds, well, interest rates are low. So we know that that's going to generate poor returns. Based on market history, we know that you're going to see multiple large drawdowns. We just had one. Um, they're kind of a force of nature. They constantly happen, 50%, um, 30%. The depression we had an 80% drawdown. So how do you contain those? Um, I've always tried to research more how to do this with stock selection. But when you're talking about limiting draw like seriously limiting drawdowns what you really need is asset allocation what you really need are defensive assets um, owning more stocks isn't going to help owning a certain sector of the stock market isn't going to help in 2000 in a situation like 2008 or the decline we just had um, it doesn't matter what you own like you're going to lose money so i wanted a portfolio that didn't do that i wanted a portfolio that wasn't that stressful and that intense something that i know i have a chunk of my savings and that can grow um, it's not going to lose money over time like cash but it ought to earn an adequate return and ought to limit some stress so i basically settled on um, a few asset classes um, I wanted it to be globally diversified and I wanted to have some, um, basically some defensive assets built into it. So what I decided on was 20% US small cap value, 20% international small caps, 10% um, US real estate, 10% international real estate, 20% long-term treasuries and 20% gold. So you have 60% that's really diversified. Um, it's globally diversified. It has a tilt towards value. It has a tilt towards asset classes that don't experience lost decades like market cap weighted US stocks do because they're constantly going through periods of euphoria and despair, like small values never had a lost decade. Um, REITs don't have lost decades. Um, which is amazing considering one of those decades was one where they had a 68% drawdown in the 2000s. Um, and then you want it to be globally diversified because you want to diversify some political risk too. Like you don't know, the U.S. has been the best game in town for the last 100 years. Will that continue to be the case? I hope so, but I don't think it's safe to bet all of my money on that. So it's basically 50% U.S., 50% um, international. Um, Long-term treasuries, that's the slice of the bond market that usually does best when stocks are getting clobbered because the Fed is cutting interest rates. There's a flock to safety. Um, so you usually see long-term treasuries do really well during difficult periods for the economy and the stock market. Um, long-term treasuries gained 20% in 08. They're actually up 20% this year, so it's a good asset to own. Um, at the same time, I didn't want to have 40% of my portfolio in treasuries because interest rates are low, because um, I don't think they're truly as risk-free as has been advertised. So 20% is in gold. Um, gold, um, over the long term, is probably only going to deliver the inflation rate, but gold has some nice characteristics where it'll do well in an inflationary environment when the treasuries will do poorly because um, interest rates are going to be going up during an inflationary environment. So the treasuries will get clobbered, but gold should do okay. At the same time, both assets are still defensive assets. They don't go down a lot when the stock market is getting hit badly um, and they should limit those drawdowns. And then when you put all of those assets into a portfolio together, what I found through my back testing 
is you basically get the return of the U.S. stock market, um, but you get it a lot more consistently. Um, this is a portfolio that delivered a decent return in the 70s. It delivered a decent return in the 2000s. It underperforms during incredible bull markets like the one we just had, like the 90s, like the 80s. But over time, I think it's diversified enough and it's in the right kind of assets where it should be able to, you should be able to count on it to safely grow wealth over, over time. All right. So you actually more or less alluded to my next question because, you know, going with the book, you know, I, I, you sent me a, I was able to read a little bit more of a synopsis, you know, um, and, and it's a loaded question. You more or less kind of answered it, but I figured maybe we take a, a next level is in essence then, you know, how, how do you then avoid bubbles, limit drawdowns, and safely grow wealth? You know, is it, is it, is this weird portfolio kind of the one-stop solution for all of that? Or is there, or are there ways in which you can adjust that will still meet those goals? So the gold and long-term treasuries help limit the drawdowns. So, um, in a situation like 2008, like in 2008, this portfolio lost only 17%, um, thanks to gold and then thanks to the strong performance in long-term treasuries. In terms of avoiding bubbles, um, small value is something that isn't going to get swept up in large mar market cap-oriented bubbles. Um, small cap value underperformed in the 90s because it didn't participate in that bubble. It still delivered an, an adequate rate of return. It still delivered roughly 10% that decade. It just didn't do well as the market cap weighted index because the market cap weighted index got swept up into a crazy bubble. My opinion is that's happening now, again, um, but small cap value, by definition, because it's the cheaper segment of the market, it's not going to get involved in that. Um, you saw a similar phenomena in Japan. So in Japan, when um, the Nikkei got crushed, that was really a large cap event. If you were in small value, you still drew down a lot when Japan had recessions, but um, small value delivered a return in Japan. Um, and then if you were to pursue a strategy like Joel Greenblatt's magic formula, that actually did 16% during that whole period of the whole last 30 years when that was getting crushed. Um, REITs. So real estate usually goes up over time. Um, it only had one major drawdown since the depression, which was 2008. But REITs also don't get swept, swept up in these big market cap weighted bubbles. Um, and you saw that in the 90s as well. They didn't really participate in that mania because they, you buy a piece of real estate based on its rental income. Um, that's not really as exciting as buying some new internet stock and thinking, oh, this is going to compound at 30% a year over the next 20. You're buying a yield, you're buying, you're getting some rent, you're getting appreciation from the price of the real estate. So it's less likely to get swept up in a bubble. Um, as we saw in the mid 2000s, it's not impossible for real estate to not get swept up into a bubble, but it's a lot rarer than what happens for those market cap weighted indexes. Um, at the same time, it's unusual for all of the markets all over the world to get swept up into a bubble together. Um, so that's why it's internationally diversified. Um, if one country's in a bubble, it doesn't mean that the rest of them are. I would argue right now that the US is probably 
in a big market cap weighted bubble and the rest of the world probably is not. If you look at most of the valuations around the world, they're very reasonable or they're very cheap. Um, and US stocks are extremely expensive. So it makes sense, I think, if you're, it's in the right asset classes, asset classes that try to avoid bubbles. And at the same time, it's internationally diversified in a way where hopefully that helps avoid um, getting swept up in these big market cap weighted bubbles. All right, so I'm, I'm gonna stop there on the book because uh, I, I want people to go out and, and buy it and read it. So uh, what, <laughs> when, do you, when do you think it's gonna be out? Um, I'm, I'm, I have the first draft done. I'm hoping to get it out in the next month or two. Um, and right now I'm just touching it up and doing a lot of the, uh, making sure that all the numbers are right throughout the book and doing some editing. But for the most part it's done and hope to have it out in the next couple of months. Awesome, well, I'm excited to read the full thing. Uh, I, I, like I said, I got the synopsis. So, and, and I, I hope people go out and buy it, you know, based on what they heard today. Um, so, you know, we're there at that, at the point in the interview where my favorite question, you know, it's coming. What, what investing experience would you say has impacted you the most in your career thus far? Um, my early experience with the internet bubble has impacted me the most. Um, Going through that and seeing a bubble in real time, when fortunately the only money I had on the line was some money I made mowing lawns, um, it was it was a good experience to have at such an early age where I got swept up in a bubble. Um, I, I got, was excited about the future. Um, I completely bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. Fortunately, I got out of it early enough, but I, real, I understood the psychology of a bubble. I understood being really excited about a new, new thing um, and getting swept up in that optimism. And now it's really easy for me to see it when it happens. Um, I can, I saw it in 2017 with Bitcoin. I, I, that was something I looked at and I'm like, yeah, this says all the hallmarks of a crazy bubble. Um, you know, and I was able to not get swept up in the FOMO to get into that at that point. Um, and I'd say that was the most instructive experience. Maybe it impacted me for the worse. It is it having that experience when I was 18 years old probably just wed me to value investing in a way that can't be shaken. Um, some would say that's a bad thing. I, I think it's a good thing. Um, but yeah, I'd say that experience with the internet bubble and seeing it collapse really had a huge impact on me. Very cool. So, what what advice would you then? Say that you have for new investors. I usually say just looking at the stock market in general, but in your case, since you are a value stock geek, you know, uh, what, what advice would you have for new investors looking to deploy a value-based strategy? If you're going to pursue a value-based strategy, definitely read value investing books before you get involved in it. The best books you can read are obviously The Intelligent Investor. That's the number one. But um, I would direct someone to first read The Little Book That Beats the Market by Joel Greenblatt just because it's a very good introduction to the idea of what you're trying to do in investing. You're trying to analyze a business, what makes a good business, what makes a bad business. Um, it explains a lot of the concepts behind um, undervaluation and how that happens in the market. Like Joel Greenblatt just has a very um, kind of breezy way of explaining that in that book and you'll quickly get it. Like it, he wrote the book for his kids. So I think that's a great way to um, get an introduction to that. Um, then I would say read some Tobias Carlyle, read Deep Value, read The Acquirer's Multiple. Yeah. <laughs> Those are both uh, excellent books. Um, and then I would say um, when you want to really punish yourself, 
you could read Security Analysis, <laughs> which is a rough book to get through, but there's a lot of important lessons in there, especially in the chapters when he's talking about um, net nets and how an undervalued company reaches its appropriate level of valuation. Um, and then I would say, you know, get started with a small amount of money. Um, definitely don't throw all of your savings into a value investing strategy right away. Um, it's one thing to run like a, a paper portfolio and to try to, like I did that for years, you pick a stock in a paper portfolio and like a Google portfolio back when they had those um, and see how it does. It's a completely different experience when it's your money on the line. Um, so I would say learn, start small, and then, uh, and then go from there and then try to learn lessons as you go along. And I'd say another big thing is definitely write about your portfolio. Um, you don't necessarily have to do it publicly like I did, um, but looking back at a journal, a trading journal or an investing journal, looking at your thesis, looking at what you thought at the time. I think that's something that you can really learn a lot from. Um, you can look back at, it's easy to fool yourself. It's easy to say like, oh, I always knew that was gonna happen. Um, but then when you go back and actually read your writings, you're like, oh, okay. I was in a much different <laughs> place than I thought. It's really easy as humans to fool yourselves. So it makes a lot of sense, I think, to keep some kind of trading journal to hold yourself accountable. Agreed. I, that, that's my favorite advice is just write everything down, you know, in your, in your, even if it's on your notes or what, whatever it is, just write it down, you know, and, and really track what you've been doing and why. Yeah. You, you, learn, learn, you learn a lot from that. You learn a lot from going back and reading stuff you wrote in the past. That's for sure. And also all the embarrassing things that you wrote, like uh, you, you never know what you're going to find in there. Yeah, my blog is full of embarrassing things. Um, you can go back and read a lot of really bad stock pitches. So, but it's nice to go back. It's nice to go back and read them and say, okay, well, um, lessons learned. Some items adds the checklist there. <laughs> that's for, that's for sure. All right. Well, with that, where can my audience go and find everything they need to know about Value Stock Geek? Um, so the blog is the is the best place. It's valuestockgeek.com. Um, and then my Twitter handle is at ValueStockGeek, and I post on Twitter all the time. And then if you want to read some more in-depth analysis of my thoughts on the market or my thoughts on individual stocks, um, the blog is the best place to look. Well, Mr. Geek, thank you so much. I'm digging the anonymous vibe. This is cool, man. Like, <laughs> don't don't ever don't 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 even once you know once you're ready to not be anonymous, just keep it anonymous. I like this. This is cool. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I'm stoked for the next update. All right. Thanks, man. Have a good day. You too.